Good morning. It's Monday, the 4th of December, and this is Govind Raj Ethiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. You can now join us at 6 a.m. in India, 8.30 a.m. in Singapore, and 7.30 p.m. New York on all the major audio streaming platforms. Our top stories and themes for the day. The stock markets look set to continue a solid run on election results and a surge in global equities. Private consumption will drive India's economy, but it has to free itself of its loans first. And hybrid cars are overtaking electrical vehicle sales in India and elsewhere. Indians are spending more overseas including through longer stays, but the government is wary. This is a core report with Govindraj Athiraj. Markets looking back and forward. The stock markets had a good week last week. A better than expected GDP number pumped the markets with the Nifty 50 hitting a record high of 20268 up 135 points on Friday while the Sensex rose 493 points to close at 67481. Now the last week has been good overall with the Sensex rising about 1383 points and BSE's market cap that's the Bombay Stock Exchange's market cap topping the historic 4 trillion mark for the first time something we broke down in some detail last week in the meanwhile the market capitalization of NSE or the National Stock Exchange listed companies because the overall sample differs has also crossed the 4 trillion mark as of Friday did you know by the way which are the top 3 companies by market capitalization or value Well, they are, and maybe no surprises, Reliance Industries, Tata Consultancy Services, and HDFC Bank. Anyway, November was a good month for the Nifty, which rose 5.5 percent, the most since July 2022. But the story here goes a little beyond India and is worth viewing in this context. And there is, of course, the other context of elections, the legislative elections in states in India, and I'll come to that in a moment. But world over, markets have been on steroids or close to it in recent days. November was the best month for Wall Street since 2008 summed up a report in Bloomberg. Moreover, the report says volatility has fallen to pre-pandemic lows and a Goldman Sachs Group Inc gauge of global risk appetite has hit near the highest level in 2 years. Now, back home, the markets will welcome the BJP's win in the states of Madhya Pradesh where it has returned and Rajasthan and Chhattisgarh where it has defeated the incumbent. It lost in the state of Telangana to the Congress. Now the winds would reflect continuity for the markets which have been trying to read the tea leaves on public sentiment ahead of the general elections in May next year. It is of course reasonably well understood that legislative or state election outcomes may not define or represent voting patterns at the national level later. Nevertheless for the markets which were looking for a temperature check if nothing else this is a timely and useful input. But the market that continues to fascinate me is oil. So the news is that the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries or OPEC Plus agreed to extend their production cuts by about a million barrels a day that's an additional million barrels. Now the reason they're cutting production is because of a fall in crude prices and projections of more surplus next year. As we mentioned earlier the United States itself is seeing a decline in gasoline consumption. Obviously oil producing countries want to earn more from the crude they produce and sell and keep prices high or try by maintaining them at higher levels. Now the details are not so relevant as is the outcome which is that oil prices have actually fallen further in response to the likelihood of a further cut in supply when in theory it should have gone up. 
except that this is what a normal day looks like, I guess, in the oil markets. So Brent crude, incidentally, is now quoting around $79 a barrel after hitting about $84.38 just four days ago on Thursday. To put the prices in context, Brent was at its yearly high of about $94.36 on September 27th, or that's the end of September. The Hamas attack on Israel happened on October 7th, and while the war and the subsequent Middle East tensions pushed oil back above the $90 mark momentarily, it has actually not touched the September peak. So let's move on to currency. The rupee has undoubtedly performed well this year against most major currencies in the world. Actually, it's been amongst the best performers despite a bad year last year, as we discussed on Friday. However, it has not gained in the last month even as the dollar has weakened, almost finally, you could say. The rupee is amongst a handful of currencies which were unable to capitalize on the dollar's decline, a report from BOB Research says, adding that it ended the month flat with a marginal decline of 1 paise. However, while it touched a record low several times during the month, the volatility in the rupee is also near multi-year lows. The annualized daily volatility in the rupee has fallen steadily from about 5% in January 2023 to about 1% or 1% in November 23. That's right now. The rupee's weakness is a little worrying because of the lack of explanations for it and because all the trend data is actually positive like a softer dollar, which we talked about, lower oil prices, which we also referred to, a reversal in foreign portfolio investment outflows, which means there are more inflows now, which again we've touched upon in the past, easing domestic inflation and strong domestic growth momentum, according to BOB Research or Bank of Baroda Research. They conclude that the rupee's underperformance can be explained by a strong demand for dollars by importers in the last few weeks. So, Hopefully, or maybe that's the reason, and I guess we will know better or best in coming days and weeks. So the projection now is a range between 83 rupees and 83 rupees 50 paise to a dollar for the next fortnight. What happens when the loans that fueled consumption have to be returned? So, We spoke of the unexpectedly high GDP numbers that came in on Thursday for the second quarter, which is from July to September, and that number was 7.6%. There's a lot of useful analysis which has subsequently emerged, as would have been expected, and is often the case. For one, the consensus seems to be that this is unlikely to be repeated in the subsequent quarter. Crystal Chief Economist DK Joshi, for example, says that they expect growth to slow in the second half, due to a deepening global slowdown and the lagged impact of domestic rate hikes manifesting fully through the second half of this fiscal. Now, that's the broader picture around many economists appear to be aligned. But there's a little more on the numbers themselves, and I will liberally quote from columnist TN Nainan of Business Standard. In a column titled, Handle with Care, India's latest GDP numbers flatter but don't deceive, he asks us to pick the sectoral number that principally supports that upbeat total, which is manufacturing sector, which grew at about 13.9 or 14% over a year earlier, unusual in itself as he says, and well above the growth rates for other sectors. It also happens, or so happens as he points out, that the corresponding quarter a year earlier had again, unusually, seen the manufacturing sector shrink by 3.8%, thereby creating a low base as the comparison point for this year. So if you were to combine the numbers for the latest quarter and the corresponding number a year earlier, And you get, as he says, 13.9 minus 3.8 equals to 10% growth 
or an average of 5% for each of those quarters. So, without getting too deep into those numbers, particularly if you're finding it difficult to follow, the first warning he says is that when looking at GDP numbers, watch out for the outlier sectors. ICICI Securities Economists, in their note, acknowledge the same, that a lower manufacturing base helped the numbers shoot, but add that the low base would continue to be helpful in the third quarter, as well as because the year earlier saw manufacturing contract by 1.4%. Now, it is not clear to me how a weak base is helpful except in purely numerical terms. Anyway, the interesting proser from TN9N's column is the optimism and pessimism in outlook. And to be fair, he has both points of view. According to him, the reason for optimism is that private investment is yet to kick in to the full extent of the economy's potential. And the reason for skepticism lies in the fact that while even the GDP numbers as reported show below par growth in private consumption, even that has been fueled by a boom in personal loans which cannot last. Consumers who have stoked up on debt will be spending subsequent quarters paying down that debt, not indulging in further consumption, he says, or perhaps warns. A sustained lack of pace in consumption growth could act as a drag on GDP numbers and inhabit investment. Now, the personal debt is something that we've focused on more from the outstanding's point of view, but equally about how they're rising and the strain on the system. Not so much about what or who or how things will be affected as the repayment kicks in. Now, we had shared just last week that non-bank finance companies have roughly 350,000 crore worth of personal loans outstanding, which in itself is about 12 to 14% of the total book of about 27 lakh crore. The point is that about 88%, as was told to be by a senior official of Crystal Ratings, is secured with homes and cars and so on, which means that there are underlying assets. The figures that I have here, of course, is only non-bank finance companies and not banks. But the point is, whether banks or non-bank finance companies, all loans, whether secure or not, have to be repaid. And the banking system having the comfort of asset recovery is in itself not a sign of economic health or more specifically the quality of private consumption. The forthcoming quarters will thus be illustrative. Remember, the Reserve Bank has already increased risk weightages for loans and credit cards, which means higher costs down the line. Hybrids seem to be winning the war against electric right now. Last month, Toyota Motor Company chairman Akio Toyoda, when asked about the challenge from electric vehicles, including the lull in US demand, said the industry was coming to recognize that there is no single answer to reducing carbon emissions. People are finally seeing reality, Toyoda said, speaking as the head of the Japan Automobile Manufacturers Association and as quoted by the Wall Street Journal. Toyota, who stepped down this year as Toyota chief executive after about 14 years in the job, has long said that the auto industry should hedge its bets by continuing to invest in hybrid gasoline electric cars and other options beyond just electric vehicles. It appears now that Toyota has been barking up the right tree, so to speak, and at least for now. Most US automakers, including Tesla and Ford, have warned about a sudden slowdown in consumer demand for electric vehicles, whereas Toyota's hybrid and electric vehicle offerings are now growing and quite strongly. But the interesting thing is that India is already mirroring this trend, and perhaps not surprisingly. An insightful report by Sharmishta Mukherjee in the Economic Times points out that hybrid cars are rapidly gaining popularity in India, overtaking battery electric vehicle sales for three straight months this financial year. So new car buyers are gunning for the few hybrids 
like the Maruti Suzuki Grand Vitara, Toyota Urban Cruiser Highrider, Honda City, and Toyota Innova Hi-Cross. Sales of hybrid vehicles totaled 24,000 units or so in the last three months to November compared to about 21,400 electric vehicles sold in the same period. Now, this is despite the availability of a large number of electric cars currently. 16 EV models compared to about four strong hybrids, says the Economic Times. So the reasons, as you can guess, are fairly logical. The lack of charging infrastructure is a hurdle, as is range anxiety, though that's in India and elsewhere. And of course, they are slightly cheaper than electric vehicles. The ET sums up that the hybrid cars are about 20 to 30% pricier compared to conventional cars, but deliver 35 to 40% higher fuel efficiency. Now, I do think that Toyota's determination to hold their view against vociferous public opinion on fossil fuels alternates is worth noting. Not many companies or CEOs have had the guts to take a what would appear to be a pro-fossil fuel stance, even if it's a hybrid one, pun intended. So, if hybrid prices come down, remember, duties on them are higher at about 40% in India as opposed to 5% on electric, then the battle could become exciting. Not that it isn't one right now. No specific subsidies for Tesla. Speaking of electric cars, a report by the Press Trust of India has quoted a government official saying India will never provide company or enterprise-specific incentives in the electric vehicle sector in the context of a push from American electrical car maker Tesla for special SOPs to set up its factory in India. Now, the SOPs would have mostly meant lower tariffs on imports, but of fully built models, which has, of course, not been given to anyone. So think of let's say, a mid-sized or an economy Ford or a Hyundai vehicle being directly imported and sold in the country at a discounted tariff. So if the tariff, let's say, is 100% for everyone, this particular car manufacturer would perhaps be able to import it at 10% or 20%. So if the government has to consider providing incentives, then it will only be for all EV makers and entrants who want to come to India, the officials said. Which is, of course, again, as I said, logical. But the narrative, possibly in the way it was reported, seems to suggest or seemed to suggest that Tesla might be able to wrangle some concessions exclusively, even if only for a limited time, given the Indian government's desperation to get them to set up shop here. Tesla should, of course, be welcomed, as we've discussed in the past. But Tesla cars are unlikely to come in at a price point, going by available reports, that would make it a mass product or even close. Current estimates put the price even of the cheapest Tesla car at around 20 lakhs or so. More importantly, foreign and Indian manufacturers who've invested deeply in the Indian market in recent decades cannot and should not be discriminated against or even made to feel that there could be a prospect of that. Now, quite likely nothing happened at all, so all is well. But I do believe that while Tesla is obviously the most premium and desired badge in electric globally right now, there is nothing to say it will enjoy similar success in India as and when it arrives. The iPhone to Tesla comparison, I feel, is limited. And for reasons I will go into another time, though you could also give it some thought. And finally, India's outbound tourism sector is booming, with some 70 million Indians traveling this year for tourism and other purposes. Indians are also spending more, staying longer overseas since fares are high, and also booking tickets closer to dates of departure. Moreover, they're heading to new destinations like Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, and of course, Vietnam. The new destinations are an outcome of the travel and tourism trade doing the groundwork in collaboration with some of these countries, 
as well as of course subsequently airlines launching direct or more direct flights. But the government is concerned or seems to be concerned by the increased spending as evidenced by the imposition of a tax collected at source on overseas spends. So I reached out to Jyoti Mayal, president of the nearly 75-year-old Travel Agents Association of India on the Core Report Weekend Edition. And I began by asking her how she was seeing the tax imposition, as well as the Prime Minister Modi's suggestion that Indians should be doing their big marriages in India, or at least more of them in India, rather than outside. The government is worried. I think this is more from a finance balance of payments, perhaps, point of view. They're saying, okay, Indians are spending a lot of money overseas. It's not like our forex reserves are crashing or anything, but we've always been concerned that, you know, if we, there's too much dollars going out, then that could be a problem. That's one part. And then the Prime Minister says that, you know, I would urge you, he doesn't force you, it's not a regulation or something, but he's saying, yeah, I urge you to have those big weddings in India, which I think to me is an interesting question because it's not like there's that much supply available in India to hold that many weddings here. But how are you seeing this? I mean, all of this, which is the moral plus, let's say, the, the financial kind of disincentives to spend overseas or take Forex out overseas for the purpose of travel. So I have my own opinion on this as an association president and a personal thing. I feel that, yes, it is an urge, but if you're increasing the taxes, that doesn't mean it's an urge. That means you're actually being told that not to travel outside. I'm a very straightforward person, so that's the reason I'm putting it like this. Like I said, there is an opportunity for both growths, domestic and international, with such a huge population. You can't curb your growth. In one way, you are actually developing your country. You are bringing in everything. And second way, you are saying you can't travel. Unless I travel, how do I really educate myself? I can't be only domesticated and travel and get knowledgeable about the entire thing. Secondly, the most important thing when I feel when these things like these come into the limelight is, can an airline survive on a one-way traffic? Can an airline survive? It cannot. Each seat is perishable. One seat goes vacant, that means you've lost a huge amount. That can only happen if there is traffic from both sides. You know, you cannot survive on one side of travel and it will not happen. It is only because when I as an Indian go out and meet people abroad, I'm the best ambassador of my country. And believe you me, so are you. Because everyone who travels, what are we portraying when we go to any country? We are Indians. If we are talking well, walking well, Getting ready well, we are portraying India what India is today. We are not wearing those old, uh, we are not the snake charmers like old times. We are the new year generation. So unless I go out and I actually educate the masses there who are not even coming to India, how will they come to it? So I see that when I go and interact with people there, their thought process changes. Some of them, you know, Americans are the most, I would say, conservative people when it comes to travel. They only know how to travel within their own country. You know, 60% of them don't even have passports. So how do you go and tell them, hey, we are Indians. We are not a country of snake charmers only. We are the country of charmers. You know, please come to our country and see what we are, who we are. So I think this thought needs to be changed. And, you know, making it difficult is only going to make you lose out on the actual taxes and the actual payments. It's not going to affect your tourism in the long run. Because people will still find, because everyone has a family and friend outside, they will still find ways of traveling, paying, everything. And also, not only that, a lot of Indian travel agents have already opened offices out in America and different shows. What are we doing? We are also losing the basic tax that's coming into country. Yes, our business is getting less. The travel agent is being deprived of business. But believe you me, tourism is not going to go down. And talking about weddings, I think 
you know, uh, recently a country, and not naming anyone, they wooed me. They said, can you come do an India show into our country? I said, what do you want? Just bring the wedding planners here. We want you to portray weddings of India here. You know, so they are getting both ways. They want to have weddings in their country, but they're also telling them to go back to India to have their weddings. So it's a two-way traffic. And that's what I believe in. I always say it very strongly. Tourism has no borders. The COVID, you couldn't stop the COVID even if you stopped the close the borders. They did not need a passport or a visa to travel. So why do we close down? Why do we restrict ourselves? Why do we restrict our footfalls going anywhere? I think more the merrier. And believe you me, Domestic tourism will not go anywhere as long as the infrastructure keeps getting better, as long as the last mile connectivity gets better, as the ease of business comes in, protection of the traveler comes in, insurances come in. So we need to develop all that then to say we are scared. You never be scared of any competition. That's what I believe in. Because I think there's space for everything. As long as you know what you're delivering is absolutely to the best. That's it for me for today. Have a great week ahead. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>